0: Well, good morning. We're continuing today in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, we'll read the scripture in just a minute and then uh, discuss the summary of that chapter that I hope you've had a chance to uh, to write three or four sentence summary of the class, of the uh, chapter. And then we have some interesting class discussion questions. We'll look at Paul's imperative to begin the chapter of how the Christians ought to regard the apostles, including himself. And then also he mentions there the mysteries of God. So what are the mysteries of God? And then the third thing is what is it that Paul says he teaches everywhere in every church? And then we'll take a look at the outline and run through that briefly. I did something wrong there. Let's read through the scripture. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now you remember from our introduction and from our previous lessons that Paul is dealing here in these first few chapters of First Corinthians with some serious problems that had arisen in the Corinthian church since he founded it, probably about five years earlier, from the time that he's writing this letter. He's now moved on to Ephesus. And he's ministering there and writing this letter back to the Corinthians because he has gotten news. You'll remember it was Chloe's people, he says, that reported to him the problems that existed in the Corinthian church. We're going to find out shortly in the next week or two that they have written him a letter. And he also addresses some of the concerns that they express in that letter. But here in these first four chapters, he's dealing with those problems. The biggest problem being one of division, that division growing out of their unique position, as we have seen geographically, their geographic position as being sort of the gateway into uh, into the travel by land north to Europe or from Europe to southern Greece or by sea from Europe to Asia and back again. They control that access. And that resulted in their economic uniqueness. They were a very prosperous city because of their their control of that access. And that resulted in a unique culture. And it's that culture that we see playing out here with divisions that were built upon factions. And apparently those factions are personality cults where they said, I belong to Paul. And another group said, no, I belong to Apollos. Another says, "No, we're the Christ Party," so they divided up according to personality, and that, person, that personality, it seems, is based upon how good, uh, what a good speaker the various teachers that they have had are. Are they really good speakers? Because they valued rhetoric, they valued great speech, and the speech that they valued was a kind of speech that was persuasive. Whether it was true or not didn't matter. It was the ability to persuade people that mattered. And that was driving this, this division into factions. Apollos was apparently a better speaker than Paul was. And Paul admits that he was not a very good speaker. Uh, it's also driven by wisdom, uh, they put a great value upon wisdom. Uh, which was the wisdom of the world. It was the wisdom that grew out of their unique situation in Corinth. And that is driving the divisions. So so personalities, the ability to speak well, wisdom and knowledge, all of those things were driving these factions. Paul is dealing with all of them in these first few chapters here. He continues here now in verse 4 addressing those things. And he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. And we want to talk about that in just a minute. But first of all, did anyone have time to write their summary, just three or four sentences summarizing what that chapter is all about? Maybe not all about, but what is it about? Put into three or four sentences. Yes. Apostles and thereby extension leaders in the church have been gifted with the privilege of serving Christ and being wise stewards of the gospel. Their judge is God alone who will bring to light the purposes of the heart. Those who have received the gift of faith and salvation are rich beyond measure and should live with humble gratitude and selfless service as did Paul. Excellent. That's a great summary. That captures the main points. Yes. Yes. In fact, I think I'll skip over my summary and we'll (laughs) let let that stand. Uh, That that was excellent. Anybody else want to share their summary? Okay, don't look. I'll go (laughs) past that. Let's look at discussion question number one then. The question is, first of all, is Paul's strong statement? And it is strong because it's in the imperative. This is a strong statement in verse one. Is that about how, that? That is about how the Corinthians ought to think about or relate to the apostles and their other leaders. Is that a continuation of the point he was making in chapter three? Is it? What is chapter three of? What does he mention there? Still in the same topic, really, but but what specifically does he mention there? In chapter 3, he's talking about the factions, and he's talking about boasting, isn't he? Yeah. He's, he's comparing and contrasting the two, because in chapter 3, he's talking about you all feel so wise in the worldliness, but the fact is, we need to be humble. <laughs> right. Yeah, humility is a big part of what Paul is saying here. And often the interpretation that you read about of 1 Corinthians is just the opposite. Paul is exerting his authority, and he's uh, demanding, as we'll see in a moment, that people imitate him. And so he's putting himself in a position. It's actually just the opposite that he's doing. And we've talked about that a little bit before, but, but humility is a big part of what he's doing here. Um, In chapter 3, and I asked the question, what idea described in chapter 3 conditions how the Corinthians should regard the apostles? He begins by saying, uh, you should regard us as servants and stewards of the mystery of God, and it is required in stewards that they be found faithful. So they ought to regard them as servants. That's a fairly humble statement. As stewards, a steward is also a servant who's been given certain authority and uh, and is held accountable for the work that he does. But nevertheless, a servant and a steward. And, uh, and that's how he says they ought to regard them. And then I was feeling generous, so I just gave you the answer. It's chapter 3, verse 21. Anybody look that up? Just a few verses back. What does that say? Somebody read it for us. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Let no one boast in men. Now, that's what they were doing and dividing up into these personality factions. They were saying, "Well, well, Paul was the founder of the church, so I belong to the Paul party. I identify with Paul. Well, Apollos is a better speaker, though much better preacher. I identify with Apollos. Now." in boasting about their leaders what were they doing? They were really boasting about themselves weren't they? They were saying I'm better than you are because I'm with him Uh, and so Paul is is speaking about humility and he's saying don't boast in men men aren't worth boasting in and he goes on here in a moment to talk about the, uh, the gifts that they have been given they had a Strange view of their spirituality and the gifts that God had given them. And there was an overemphasis upon uh, the gifts of the spirit there that we'll talk about later as we go through 1 Corinthians. They acted as if they were special, that they had something that nobody else had. And therefore they were boasting, dividing into parties as a sort of indirect way of boosting themselves. And Paul is saying you can't boast in men. In fact, when it comes to the apostles, you must regard us as servants and faithful stewards of God's mysteries. So quite apart from boasting in himself or setting himself up as someone who should be imitated, Paul is actually saying here, consider me to be a servant. Consider me to be someone who has been given a task to perform by God, a steward, and one who is trying to faithfully carry that out. So, strong statement, this, regard us this way, he says, regard us this way as servants. Discussion question number two. Paul writes in verse one that the apostles are stewards of the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? And I gave you several verses that I've listed here. We're not necessarily going to go through all of them, but now they're a part of the video record. So anyone can uh, go online to spcgreenville.org, look under Fellowship Sunday School Community, and find a video of all of our First Corinthians classes, and they'll find these verses and can look them up there. So. Paul says he's stewards of the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? When you read through those verses, what kinds of things does Paul mention as being the mysteries of God? Several things he sets forth there. Yes. Yes. Yes, the mystery of Israel's salvation. Let me see if I see that here. Um, One of them mentions that. Another one that's closely related to that is Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Uh, the the mystery of, of Israel, but the mystery also of the Gentiles being incorporated into the same body. They are members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What else did you find there that constitutes a mystery of God? Well, Ephesians 6, 9 says, for me, pray for me also, that words may be given to me in opening my bow, mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The gospel itself was a mystery of God. Colossians 2 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Christ is a mystery of God. The mystery being that God sent his only son who took upon himself the form of a man who became obedient, even uh, the obedience uh, unto the death of the cross. He paid the penalty for not his own sins, but our sins. So that by accepting that, confessing our sins, repenting of them, and asking God for forgiveness, then we can be brought into the family of God. He says that's a mystery. The mystery is Christ. He talks about the mystery of lawlessness. Uh, Looking now at at this this period of time here between the Advents, culminating in a great, huge uh, display of lawlessness that the scripture says is coming. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, he says, Only now he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. He talks about the mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, some people disagree as to what the godliness that's being talked about here is. Uh, I don't think it means behaving in a godly manner the way we might ordinarily take godliness. I think within this context, because he goes on, he talks about the mystery of godliness, colon, and then he says, he who was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. I think the godliness there is the mystery of of the deity of Christ. It's, It's the fact that uh, only deity can do these things, be manifest in the flesh, uh, vindicated by the Spirit, taken up into glory. Uh, those are godlike things in the fact that Christ, uh, the Son of God, was indeed God himself. So the mystery of godliness. So those are the sort of things that, that Paul is referring to here, but why are they called mysteries? apostles has been, certainly, but they're asking these new believers simply have faith. They do not have a chance to see their own eyes, with their own eyes, you know, Jesus rising up to the sky. So they really have to go by faith here. Okay, yeah, good. Faith is a part of it, and the fact that they had not personally seen the miracles, they had not personally... Seen Christ and and heard him teach, and the and the subject matter of his teaching, uh, well, well here's here's what a mystery is, uh, as the Bible uses it, it's that which is true, but which reason cannot find out. Men cannot know what these mysteries are. You would never ever ever come to the conclusion of the mystery of godliness, of the mystery of the gospel, of the Gentiles being incorporated into the into the uh, body of Christ along with Jews, into one body. Those are things that had to be what? Revealed. So a mystery is something that you can only know because God reveals it. So how did the apostles and prophets come to know what these mysteries were? It was revealed, revealed, yeah. God revealed it to them. In the case of the apostles, Christ taught it to them. Uh, They are, in their writings in the New Testament and their teaching during New Testament times, they were setting forth the, the direct teaching of Christ that they heard with their own ears. As they reached the end of their lives, they began to realize, I may not be around to continue to do this, so they wrote it down. That truth was inscripturated, and we have the New Testament, because the apostles and those who were closely allied with the apostles wrote the teachings of Christ down. Um, so it was revealed to them. How do we know? How do we know what these mysteries are? It's been revealed to us in God's Word. It's been revealed to us in God's Word. What the prophets and the apostles wrote. That's how we know it. We couldn't figure it out. If you were gonna write a book, you would think, well, nobody would ever believe that if I put that in there. So you wouldn't ever come up with it on your own. God has to reveal it. Now, uh, what was the duty of the apostles regarding these mysteries? To preserve, them. to preserve them. And share them. To teach them. Be faithful to it. Be faithful as stewards. Uh, the, verse 1 says... That you should regard us as servants and as stewards of the mystery of God. Now, the the image here is of a is of a great um, uh, of a landowner with with a big with great land and many things going on, and he has servants who are doing all of the work, but one particular servant is particularly trustworthy. And so he's placed over the other servants, and it's his responsibility to make the trains run on time, so to speak. He is the one who makes sure when they're planting, the seed gets delivered out there uh, so they can have seed to plant and not have to stand around waiting on it. Uh, He's the one who provides the equipment. He's the one who sees to it that everything that needs to be done is being done. He's still a servant, but he has been found faithful. And Paul goes on there to say that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Paul is saying here, I'm a steward. To the best of my ability, I'm being faithful to the task that God has given me to do. I am a steward of the mysteries of God. Now then. Discussion question three. What does Paul teach everywhere in every church? And how does Paul model this teaching? What is it that Paul teaches everywhere in every place? Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified, okay, that's... that's. Um, certainly part of his gospel. In fact, that's, that's the way he says these problems of the Corinthians will be fixed, is by the preaching of the cross of Christ. By the way, that's the way they'll be fixed today, too. It's the preaching of the cross of Christ. Uh, I mentioned to Helen the other day, just thinking out loud, if every church that called itself evangelical were to preach the cross of Christ with sincerity, if they were to expose the word of God to their congregation, it would make a dramatic impact upon our culture. I think that it would do that. And then Paul says that's the key. But what does he say specifically about himself in regard to what he teaches in every church? Yes, imitate him as he imitates Christ. I urge you then in verse 16 of chapter 4, be imitators of me. And that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul is saying here, I want you to imitate me. Now, again, this is occasion for some of the interpretations that you will read to say that Paul is setting himself up uh, as as some icon that ought to be imitated. And it's just the opposite that he's saying here. He's saying, you ought to imitate me because I imitate Christ. I'm I'm sure we have some people in here who are well-versed in mathematics or else you can remember back to your uh, Algebra 1 days. What uh, What's the law called that says if A is equal to B and B is equal to C, then A is equal to C? You remember that one? That's the... That was look on Jimmy Watts. Um, yeah. Huh? <laughs> Trans- yeah. Yeah. Uh, so A is equal to B, if that's so, and B is equal to C, then A must equal C, doesn't it? B is sort of removed from the equation, and now you just work knowing that A is equal to C. So the, the transitive nature, uh, transitive law of, of mathematics. Well, that's sort of what Paul is saying here. He's A, imitate me, uh, or he's B, uh, they're A. A should imitate B, Paul. B, Paul imitates Christ, C. Therefore, A imitates C. And Paul is sort of the pass-through agent. Paul is, is the example. If you don't know what Christ is like because you weren't there, and the only thing you have is my teaching that emulate me in what I teach and emulate me and how I behave in my ministry because I try to do the best I can to be a faithful steward of these mysteries of God. So I gave you a number of verses there uh, to look at that that show exactly how it is that Paul goes about uh, those uh um, Showing himself to be faithful. Though you have countless guides, and this is from this passage, though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. I urge you then to be imitators of me. This is what I teach in every church, he says. In 1 Corinthians uh, 10, later on, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. But that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Uh, this is his way of saying, imitate Christ. Be like Christ. And not at all puffing himself up, just the opposite, as we've seen him do in every case here in 1 Corinthians and in all of his writings. Well, here's the outline four points. To chapter one, or chapter four, verses one through twenty-one. First of all, we see a stewardship of the mysteries. The apostles, including Paul, were stewards of the mysteries of God. They were examples to the Corinthians. Imitate. Be imitators of me. There was. They were set forth. Paul says as a spectacle to the world. And then finally, he says, uh, I. I act as a father to you, my children, my spiritual children, in verses 14 through 21. So let's look uh, quickly at those and see what they set forth for us. First of all, a stewardship of the mysteries, and we've talked about this, that Paul puts forth an, uh, an imperative here. Regard us as servants. That's what we are. We aren't icons to be lifted up and boasted about. A steward is required to be faithful. And Paul is saying, I am faithful to the best of my ability in setting forth these mysteries and, and, uh, and giving them out and making sure that they are known and well-known in every place that I go. And then they are judged by God. Paul is concerned because the Corinthians are engaged in judgment against him. Paul's just a bad speaker. We hope he doesn't come back here because can't stand to listen to him anymore. He's a bad speaker. He shouldn't be an apostle. It was that sort of thing that apparently was going on here. And, and Paul says, well, now, now he's not arguing against discernment. We ought to have discernment and exercise discernment. But this is judgment saying uh, regarding the worthlessness of his, the relative worthlessness of his ministry. And they are judging him in that final matter. He says that doesn't occur until Christ comes. And then there will be a judgment when when God, who is the only one capable of judging righteously, will judge. And then he will pass judgment upon my effectiveness as an apostle. And he admits everywhere, I'm not a great speaker, but that's not why I came to you. And that's not the manner in which I came to you. I came to you preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what accomplishes. It's the content of the message, not my ability to deliberate Uh, as you have come to expect in the Greek world people to have uh, to exercise great rhetoric in their speaking. So he's saying God is the judge, not men. And he says, in effect, I really don't care what you judge me to be. I'm content to allow God to be the judge of me. So we don't judge in that manner. Discernment, yes. Somebody's teaching heresy. Yeah, that's a, that's an act of discernment to say that's not right. But to judge someone as far as their worth to their master, God, He's their master. They are stewards of the of the mysteries of God, and He's the one who has the right to judge them. Uh, same thing applies to us today. Then in verses 6 through 7, we see that they are an example for the Corinthians. He says there in verse 6 that I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos. Now that raises the question that maybe the actual factions that existed there, these personality cults, weren't really built around Paul or Apollos, but Paul and Apollos are the are the illustrations, uh, the figures that he uses. To avoid having to mention people by name, that's a possibility here don't know, but it's but it's possible that he's doing that, but he said these things I have set forth as an illustration. I've applied these things, but for your benefit, that's the key to that verse. He does these this he's setting forth these words that he's writing here in these chapters in order to achieve benefit for the brothers and sisters in Corinth, the believers who are there. Once again, this lets us know that these people in Corinth were genuine believers. They are brothers. And and the idea there is brothers and sisters. It's not excluding, uh, the, the feminine, but brothers and sisters are members of the body of Christ. And, uh, and and it's for their benefit then that he is saying this. Believers in Christ, but they are not growing in Christ. They are not keeping in step with the spirit as we saw previously. So don't go beyond what is written. None of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Don't boast, in other words. And then they are a spectacle to the world. Paul says that uh, they were set forth like prisoners on their way to be executed. It was common at that time uh, to parade the prisoners who were about to be executed out in public as further humiliation and shamefulness on their part as they went to the place of execution. Have you ever seen the opera Aida? Aida is one of the great, great operas. Uh, and, and the scene in that that everybody remembers who's seen it is is the triumphal entry where they come back from defeating the enemy and they bring all the spoils of war with them and they parade them before the public and then they parade the captured enemies on their way to be executed and it's a wonderful scene and, and I eat a great music and and if you ever want to get a job in an opera, that would be the place to go get it because they need so large a cast to observe the triumphal entry, and you don't have to sing. In fact, they will forbid you to sing. All you have to do is stand there with horns on your head and, and act like you're a member of the, of the singers. You can mouth the words, but don't make a sound. Um, Aida has that great triumphal entry. He says that's what they're doing to, to the apostles. That's what God is doing to the apostles. He's parading them as if they were prisoners on their way uh to be uh to be judged. He's making a spectacle of them. And he goes on to describe the poor state of the apostles in ten through thirteen. We are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are hell we are not held we are held in disrepute. We hunger, we thirst, we're poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless. The poor state of the the apostles because they are heeding the call of God to do the task that God has given them and to be faithful as stewards of the mysteries of God. He contrasts that with the Corinthians and he uses some very uh, biting contrast there, pointed mocking and sarcasm in verses eight. Uh, You have all you want. You've already rich. You've become kings. We are fools, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we are in disrepute. So he uses this biting irony uh, to bring out the the contrast. Uh, And this is the first time he's done this. You'll notice as we go through 1 Corinthians, at the beginning, he's very mild in his Setting forth of the of the things that he needs to talk about. In fact, he commends them for some of those things, the very things that they're that he's writing to correct about them. And then he gets a little stronger, a little stronger. Now he's using irony uh, to call to their attention and make them understand uh, the condition that they're in. They're the really the ones who are putting themselves in a position of disrepute. And then finally the apostles are, are in the place of fathers to children in verses 14 and 21. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So he admonishes them. He goes on to say, imitate me, just as I imitate Christ. Paul comes out of that equation and He's saying to the Corinthians, imitate Christ, imitate Christ. And then he confronts them in verses 18 through 21. You think I'm not going to come, but I'm coming. If the Lord wills, I'm coming. And when I get there, we'll find out the power of those naysayers versus the power of God. Because the, uh, the kingdom of God proceeds according not according to talk, but in power. So key takeaway here, I think, is be imitators of Christ. That which he was admonishing the Corinthians to do, to imitate him so that they might imitate Christ, applies to us equally today too. We're subject to some of the same problems the Corinthians had. Uh, We have special circumstances, unique circumstances, that put us in a position of great uh, wealth. You know, you may not think you're wealthy, but believe me, compared to the history of the world, this country is wealthy. Uh, our poor are wealthy beyond the wildest dreams of people in some other countries and in, and in the people of, of past ages. Uh, and, and we have unique circumstances that have colored our culture. All of that is put to rest and is put aside when we imitate Christ, when we preach the word, the cross of Christ. That's the solution uh, to all of these problems. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us here today. I pray that uh, you would uh, teach us here your word, And not only just teach it to us for knowledge, but that you would show us what you would like for us to do about it. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.